enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. This was a big deal in the news in November, and a couple sweet people brought my attention to it. Thank you, Sika and Zoe. You may have seen an article or two or eight floating around, but there was something that astronomers and headline makers kept calling the zombie star. It's a pretty evocative image, though it didn't pop up on my radar until immediately after Halloween. When I went digging, it turns out that zombie stars have been in the news before. One back in 2014, though this was a different star. It doesn't have a catchy name, I'm sorry. The supernova that brought astronomers' attention to it is called SN2012Z. I can make an educated guess at how that name came about. SN stands for supernova. 2012-2012 is the year that it occurred. And I can guess that they just ran through the alphabet of observed supernovae that year. We could give the 2014 zombie star a secret podcast name, though. I was at PodCon last weekend. Uh, I mentioned it, and I posted a little about it on Twitter and on the good old Tumblr, which, as you may recall, is fillthevoid, all one word, dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com. It was a good time, and I got to attend a recording for a podcast I hadn't listened to called Alice Isn't Dead. They're a big deal in the podcast world, and I don't know that they need me publicizing them, but fuck it, it was a fun show to see live. We can call our little friend that survived SN2012Z, Alice. It's from 2014, and it's a miraculous piece of white dwarf star that survived a supernova, Alice. The zombie star that popped up in the news in 2017 has a name of its own, but it's named lowercase i, uppercase ptf, 14, lowercase hls. That's a dreadful name, in my opinion, and it's hard to keep saying, so we can give it a secret podcast name, too. It's named Romero, because I know George Romero directed a bunch of zombie movies that I haven't seen. So, most recent zombie star is Romero. Alice is from 2014. Let's keep that straight as we move on to give you some detailed background information about star life cycles for 10 to 15 minutes. Wait, don't click that pause button. Listen, I promise I'm going to talk about the zombie star, but in order to do so, I have to go a bit more in-depth into the life cycle of a star, so you understand what an undead star looks like, and why we're so pumped for a star that has transcended death and become immortal. What does immortality even look like in a star? They're not as permanent as we think they are. They have lifespans in the billions of years, but that's still a finite amount of time. What does it mean when a star won't die? I'm basically going to expand on what I covered in episode 6 on star classifications, but the life cycle of a star begins with the gravitational attraction of nebulous gases. The gases get hotter as they contract together. From that first compression and heat that start a nuclear reaction at the core of a star, there are several paths a star can take. When a star begins releasing energy, that means it's no longer contracting into a dense cloud. At this point, it's in its main sequence. 
Our sun is in its main sequence. As a yellow star, it's a medium temperature, about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Hotter stars burn blue, and cooler stars burn red. A star like our sun, which is average-sized and which we compare all other stars to because the sun is easy to study, will remain in its main sequence for about 10 billion years. During this phase, it's kept alight through nuclear fusion, as hydrogen atoms fuse together in the extreme heat of the sun's core to create helium. This process puts off a lot of light. It'll take those 10 billion years I mentioned for all of an average-sized star's hydrogen to fuse into helium atoms. There's another path a contracting gas cloud can take as it's first starting to coalesce, though. A massive star. These stars burn a much brighter blue through the same process of nuclear fusion as yellow stars. They shine until all of their hydrogen has fused into helium, but while this takes billions of years in average stars, it can take only millions of years in massive stars. Massive stars then become red supergiant stars, with that helium core surrounded by a shell of expanding gas. When there's no more hydrogen in a star, reactions will start to occur around the core of the star, and the helium will start fusing to become carbon. You can think about the thermonuclear reactions, aka the heat that melts atoms down and reforms them, as moving from lighter elements to heavier elements over time. Hydrogen becomes helium, helium becomes carbon, and it goes on down the line. There is, however, no way for nuclear fusion to create elements that are heavier than iron. The star will begin to expand, cool, and dim into a red giant, no matter what kind of star it is. Remember, the color of a star is related to its heat. So a massive blue-white star is the hottest. A yellow star is like our sun, just average heat. And a red star is cooler. As the helium core of a star runs out completely, and the outer edges of the star begin to drift away as a gas, the core left behind will, in one life path of a star, become a white dwarf star until it stops shining, at which point it will be a dead star. All of the elements that make up that star will remain trapped in the stellar core of that white dwarf. The astrophysicist Arthur Eddington thought all stars would reach this white dwarf fate. The astronomical prodigy Subramanian Chandrasekhar disagreed. In what I think is a sweet fact of life, both Eddington and Chandrasekhar were still able to be friendly, even when they had this major disagreement. There's so many stories, <coughs> Fritz Wicke, <coughs> of people being mean to each other when they believe different things about science, <coughs> Harlow Shapley. <coughs> so it's good to celebrate the times when disagreements didn't lead to assholery. Chandrasekhar actually spoke at Eddington's funeral about what a good guy he was, which is just so nice to hear. Anyway, Chandrasekhar was right. Sorry, Eddington. Chandrasekhar, and he won a Nobel Prize for this, he found the upper limit for the mass of an astronomical body that could support extreme density without imploding. Once an object exceeded this limit, which we call the Chandrasekhar limit, the object wouldn't be able to resist the force of gravity, and it, co it would collapse in on itself. That Chandrasekhar limit is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun. Any white dwarf star that has less than that mass will stay a white dwarf forever. Any star that exceeds the Chandrasekhar limit will end in a supernova. Fun fact, supernovae vibrate and emit an audible hum before they explode. I like to imagine them like those cartoon characters when they get too mad and they're like shaking and making an angry humming noise right before they go off on people. Like, that's kind of what a supernova does before it collapses in and then explodes out. I didn't mention this before because, frankly, I hadn't learned it yet, but supernovae are a really good thing. 
Remember how I said that there were all those heavy elements in the core of a star that get left behind when it becomes a white dwarf? They stay stuck in that white dwarf if the star never goes supernova. And there's no way for a star to create any elements heavier than iron. We need a supernova to get elements like copper, silver, gold, and supernovae blast out carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen from the cores of stars, all of which are necessary for life. PBS had an article on this phenomenon, and it ended with this really great thought. Quote, The Chandrasekhar limit is therefore not just as upper limit to the maximum mass of an ideal white dwarf, but also a threshold. A star surpassing this threshold no longer hoards its precious cargo of heavy elements. Instead, it delivers them to the universe at large in a supernova that marks its own death but makes it possible for living beings to exist. There are two different kinds of supernova that can result from a star. The type I talked about in episode 6, it turns out, was type 2, which comes from massive stars only. These stars have the size and pressure to generate carbon and other heavy elements at their center. If a massive star is 8 to 15 times larger than our sun and passes the Chandrasekhar limit, that heavy core collapses, becomes super dense, then explodes. What's left after the explosion is a super-dense neutron star, which I found described as, quote, a city-sized object that can pack the mass of the sun in a small space. I've mentioned neutron stars before in episode 6, and also in the episode on dark matter, episode 14. Neutron stars that are spinning very, very fast are called pulsars, which is a kind of variable star that emits light pulses usually between 0.0014 seconds and 8.5 seconds. If a massive star is even more massive, like 20 to 30 times larger than our sun, it generates a core more than three times the size of our sun, and astronomers think that this core collapses into a black hole. So that's type 2 supernovae. They come from massive stars and can produce either a neutron star or a black hole. There are some other subcategories, but the overall categorization of type 2 supernovae is that they have a hydrogen signature in their spectrum. If you listen to the episode on spectroscopy, you may recall what this means. They produce hydrogen when they explode, basically. And when folks were categorizing supernovae, the hydrogen spectra is what they noticed of this particular type of supernova. Type 1 supernovae lack a hydrogen signature in their spectra and are broken down into three categories. Type 1b and 1c supernovae go through the same core collapsing as type 2 supernovae, but have lost most of their outer hydrogen envelopes at that point which is why hydrogen is missing from their spectra. But type 1a supernovae are the type of supernova that results from the zombie star I promise this episode is about. There are two kinds of type 1 supernovae. I'm so sorry. The family tree of these has many branches. The first kind, type 1a supernovae, are used as standard candles, which I talked about in episodes 6 and 7. They're used to measure distances in space because they shine at predictable, standard luminosity when they occur. They are thought to originate from white dwarf stars that are in a close binary system, or a system where there's a white dwarf star and another star. This other star can be a different kind of dwarf star, like a red dwarf, or it can be a star that's a little cooler than the sun. As the gas of the companion star accumulates onto the white dwarf, this happens because the white dwarf is super dense. Does that make sense? The white dwarf has a lot of mass for its size, and that pulls matter towards it. 
I've talked Einstein's theory of relativity enough for this to make sense, I hope. Anyway, as that accretion of gas occurs, the white dwarf is progressively compressed. Keep adding mass to it and it gets more and more dense. Adding matter to an already matter-dense object will make its gravity act on itself even harder. This eventually sets off a reaction inside that leads to a cataclysmic supernova outburst, and that's a type 1a. These binary star systems can result in variable stars, fun fact. A dwarf nova is a close binary system of a red dwarf, a white dwarf, and an accretion disk around the white dwarf. Dwarf novae brighten by 2 to 6 magnitudes, depending on the stability of the disk. A nova is a binary system that consists of a white dwarf and a secondary star that's a little cooler than the sun. The system brightens 7 to 16 magnitudes in 1 to 100 days, and then the star fades slowly to the initial brightness over a period of several years or decades. Recurrent novae are similar to this category of variable, but have several outbursts during the recorded history. And what we're talking about with at least one of the zombie stars I mentioned, I think on some level is a recurrent novae. But there's one more type of type 1 supernova, and that's a type 1ax. Type 1ax supernovae are stellar explosions that are less bright and less violent than type 1a supernovae, but they're spectroscopically similar. Basically, type 1a supernovae are big and explosive, and type 1ax are gentler, but also still explosive. (laughs) All right, it's finally time to remember the names for our zombie stars. It's been a while. I'll refresh you. Alice is from 2014, and Romero is from this year, specifically around November 2017. We can start with Alice, since she was the first to pop up in the recent news. Our good, beautiful friend, the Hubble Space Telescope, helped a team of astronomers in 2014 spot a star system that left behind a zombie star, our Alice, after an unusually weak supernova explosion. Usually, a supernova will obliterate the star that goes supernova, but in this case, astronomers believed that the supernova left behind a piece of the dwarf star that exploded. Alice. Alice and the supernova were both in the host galaxy, NGC 1309, and I'm sorry to say that I could not even begin to speculate how galaxies are named. Hubble T had observed NGC 1309 several times in the years prior to the supernova outburst, which was lucky because it allowed scientists to compare before and after images of that region of space. The supernova was discovered in the Lick Observatory supernova search in January 2012. Sounds like a fun party. I'm going to talk in a moment about searching for supernovae, but let's get to Alice first. Curtis McCulley is the lead author of the astronomy team's paper and was the one to notice Alice still shining away near the supernova. About the find, McCulley said, quote, I was very surprised to see anything at the location of the supernova. We expected the progenitor system would be too faint to see, like in previous searches for normal type 1a supernova progenitors. It is exciting when nature surprises us. When Macaulay is talking about supernova progenitors, he's talking about the kinds of stars and conditions that will result in certain types of supernovae. The team planned to use the Hubble again in 2015 to observe the same area, giving time for the supernova's light to dim enough to reveal any possible zombie star and helium companion to confirm their hypothesis. But I couldn't find any further information about Alice. There wasn't even an update on Wikipedia. Everything was just from 2014. McCulley and his team published on Alice and the gentler supernova, and this, I'm pretty sure, is the origin of type 1ax supernovae. Alice's existence was a tangible example of this kind of supernova. 
The attention that Romero got last month, though, is for something totally different. Astronomers in California witnessed a supernova in September of 2017, cataloged it, moved on. Then astronomers Zheng Chuen Wang and Ayar Arkavi at the University of California, Santa Barbara, noticed something weird about the supernova. It was continuing to explode. Its brightness was pulsing over the course of 600 days, which is a really long period for a pulsing star to have. Arkavi said, quote, My first thought was that this must be some nearby star in our galaxy, just varying in its brightness. But when we got the first spectrum of it, we saw that it was, in fact, a supernova 500 million light years away. My mind was blown. The fact that it got bright and dim five times was very unusual. We'd never seen a supernova do that before. In fact, Romero was observed going supernova in 1954. It's been exploding and surviving to explode again for decades. Romero is 50 times larger than our sun, and the explosion is even more incredibly huge. Arkavi says, quote, This means that we still have a lot to learn about how massive stars evolve and how they explode. Right now, the theory is that a star that massive can blow off its outer layers while leaving the core intact, and eventually it will go supernova for good. That kind of behavior isn't really expected from stars nowadays, though. That kind of consistent creation and destruction was more likely to happen in the early millennia of the universe. There also shouldn't be any hydrogen left after the early supernova explosions, but astronomers observed hydrogen in Romero's spectrum when the star exploded in 2014. That means Romero exhibited <laughs> exhibits a type 2 supernova, the massive kind with hydrogen spectra. Researchers should be getting a look at Romero again this month with the Hubble. Who knows? They're pretty excited to see this zombie star. I've talked about observational astronomy quite a bit before, but I haven't really touched on what it truly is yet. It's a field with a massive history. You don't even need a telescope to practice it if the sky where you live is clear enough. A telescope helps, though, for sure. You're making observations of the stars, and the telescope will help you see fainter, more distant objects clearly. It's a field that encourages amateurs to participate, too. I've spoken about amateur astronomers, who are just folks who don't have access to the huge telescopes that universities and space organizations possess. You can't get time at Mauna Kea or the Hubble T, but you can still see things with a regular telescope on a clear night, maybe even from your backyard. Observational astronomy is essential and has been pivotal to discoveries about the changes that happen in the night sky. All the way back to Tycho Brahe and his Uraniborg, which led to the realization that the stars aren't as fixed as we thought they were, looking at the thing can get you way closer to understanding it than all the math and mapping in the world. So many prestigious universities have tapped into observations made by amateur astronomers who just love to look up and spot things. One of the most famous amateur astronomers in the supernova spotting community is Robert Evans. I read about him a long time ago, actually, back when I was trying to make it through Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Bryson went and visited and um, interviewed Evans at his home in Australia because Evans held the record for most supernovae ever spotted, as Sky and Telescope reported it in 2005. He'd spotted his 40th supernova at that point, using a 12-inch reflector telescope that looked like a very sleek white cannon. <laughs> The dude is amazing. He spots supernovae by memorizing the positions of the stars, because supernovae are only noticeable as unusual stars in the sky. They're stars where there weren't stars before, because a star exploding is much brighter than a star at any other point in its life cycle. 
and it may be visible from Earth when the star itself wasn't. So, Evans searches for supernovae by memorizing vast swaths of galaxies. He's committed more than a thousand galaxies to memory, down to the magnitude 15 stars, so that he can make his sweeping, systematic observations of the sky more quickly. He officially spotted his first supernova in 1981, and he's used telescopes from a 10-inch reflector, a 16-inch reflector, the 12-inch reflector that I mentioned earlier, and he did get to spot three with the 40-inch telescope at Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabara Bran, New South Wales. God, that's fun to say. Supernova spotting is hard. They aren't all zombie stars exploding over and over again. Most just go once, and that's all you have time to get a photo of. One chance to take a picture, analyze it with a spectroscope. It's a blink in a haystack, really. I don't know if it's possible to convey how hard it is to spot supernovae and how dedicated you have to be to catch fucking 40 of them, but I am giving the maddest props to Robert Evans of New South Wales, Australia. So, we covered the life cycle of a star, the types of supernovae that exist, and then the zombie stars. They're pretty incredible, and we really are at the cutting edge of understanding them. Still new things to learn about what happens to stars over time. For the next episode, I'm happy to accept suggestions on Tumblr. I promise you don't have to have an account to submit a question to me or a research request. You could also tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. I am trying to figure out a balance between history episodes and contemporary findings because I am interested in both. Someone I spoke to at PodCon last week mentioned something about testing or training happening near Seattle, and I, for one, am curious about what astronauts go through. So maybe it's time to research the International Space Station. I could do a couple episodes on neat astronauts, maybe, but the whole process of becoming an astronaut is a little bit more relevant to the information I try to uncover for this podcast. Speaking of PodCon, it was a really cool time. I think I accidentally used convention and conference interchangeably when I was describing it to people, and they're really not that similar of words. Conference is makers and convention is fans. But I think in PodCon's case, it was a great melding of both. My friend let me sleep at her place, and we bust into Seattle proper to the convention center. It was really foggy that weekend, which is lovely when you don't have to drive in it. (laughs) I really appreciated attending with someone who was there purely to enjoy podcasts and collect new ones to listen to. I was there as a creator and as a fan. I honed my elevator pitch for this podcast a bit during what was essentially podcast speed dating, and I eventually remembered to actually say my podcast's name, even though it turned out much more emo than the content actually is. Saying that it's called HD in the Void, I get some weird looks sometimes. I think the most surprising thing that I discovered was that not a lot of folks are doing what I do. I have listened to and enjoyed a couple informational podcasts about history and medicine, Sawbones and Stuff You Missed in History class, and my mom loves the podcast Stuff Mom Never Told You, so maybe my perspective was skewed. I suppose getting nerdy about one topic and making a podcast isn't the most intuitive route to take. I handed out these, like, typewritten business cards I'd made, so maybe some folks are tuning in for the first time. Hello. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it spins my dreidel. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to twirl your dreidel too. The next episode will be up on, uh, Jesus, New Year's Day? We'll see about that. You can find my sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. 
Hugs and Kisses from the Void. HD, signing off. Mm-hmm.